You are listening to 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is a broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. The current measures are based on fear. Good afternoon. This is Encyclopedia on 3CR, 855 am, 3cr.org.au, and 3CR digital. And. Um, uh, feeling very excited because we will be able to get back into the studio soon, waiting on um, how that's all going to work uh, from the 3CR team. Uh, but if you are listening live uh, and you just heard the program before us, Freedom of Species was their name. You can find more information about them on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, uh, where it's also the place you can go to find more information on all the programs um, that you hear on 3CR. You might also be listening along to the podcast uh, or might like to subscribe to the podcast You can find us on iTunes or Spotify or, again, the 3CR website. That's just the landing place for everything. You can find all the little bits and pieces there, uh, 3cr.org.au. On Encyclopedia, we talk all things drugs. That's drug policy, drug science, drug culture, um, and and sort of the the little bits and pieces that come come off all of those topics. Um, And we've been doing this now for five years, every Sunday, and we will have some uh, announcements soon um, about uh, a little break for the show, a little summer break for the show. It's been a bit of a mad year um, this year, as you are are entirely aware. I don't need to tell you more about that. Um, But we will be replaying some of our our shows from the past five years, Um, some of the interviews that we've conducted with um, international guests and um, some of the campaigns that we've uh, helped to promote as well. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us, uh, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram and we're on Facebook and you can find us there uh, and get in touch with us there. Uh, My name is Nick and on the program this afternoon, uh, Jack Ravel, who is the editor, chief editor, Editor in charge of Drugs Wrap, drugswrap.substack.com uh, is the uh, uh, URL where you can go and sign up uh, for the Drugs Wrap newsletter, which is a weekly newsletter um, out on Fridays covering national and international drug news, a nice slice of the drug news so you can keep up to date, um, especially good if uh, you're particularly interested in this area uh, or if you happen to work in the area, if you're an alcohol or another drug worker or work in harm reduction in one way or another. Um, Jack, how are you going? Yeah, going well. Um, I suppose definitely the editor-in-chief. We run a pretty small staff here consisting entirely of myself, so um, I'll take that title. Uh, anything to sort of beat myself up sounds good. <laughs> um, and uh, it's been a it's been an um, exciting week, I guess, because we had the New Zealand election um, was it now a week ago? A week and a moment. It was about two weeks ago mm-hmm. now, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and the counting has been going on um, from the uh, from the election um, over two issues that were uh, being voted on, which was the um, uh, euthanasia issue and the legalised cannabis issue, and there has been an announcement about that. You might have heard about it already, but we'll get to that um, shortly. And the other thing, of course, is, gosh, we must be, what, a week away from a US election now? Uh, I think it's about five days, maybe. Well, when people hear this, it's going to be two days, Tuesday. So, and then I think the the, re- the results of that in Australia are going to come out, um, I think, Tuesday evening. We'll, we'll get the sort of exit polling from that. Obviously, we're not really sure how that's going to go. They, they won't be able to count all the votes immediately because of, you know, the virus and everything. But should get some idea by Tuesday evening what the result of that is. 
Um, and the other date uh, to keep our eye on, I suppose, is um, that uh, I think it's January 28th is the inauguration of the new president of the United States. So this period that's just about to begin is going to uh, begin this this trans- potential transition um, or a potential continuation of the Trump pres- pres- presidency. Um, but enough about that. Let's go to Australia, to our poos and wees, um, because the um, the universities love to have a have a have a look, have a sniff with their science gadgets, of course. Like they wouldn't want to do it, you know, with just themselves. This is the highs and lows of Australia's drug consumption. Uh, the latest on the National Wastewater Drug Monitoring Program. Uh, the report has been released. Jack, tell us about what's in the, the report. Yeah, so the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, they usually do these reports uh, every every few months. I think actually back when I first started Drugs Wrap, and we're on issue 15 now, so probably three, four months ago, they, they released the 10th um, National Wastewater Drug Monitoring Survey, which um, basically covers about 56% of the population. And yeah, they're looking at essentially sewage, like, and, and just analyzing kind of metabolites and, and you know, remnants of, of drug and alcohol from that to get a pretty accurate picture of of, of what people are consuming. Um, you know, it's quite a good way of doing it because in, you know, self-reporting stuff, people don't generally want to tell you exactly what drugs they're taking. Um, so there's been a whole load of like interesting stories that have come out of this, uh, this week. Um, one thing that I thought was quite interesting was that lockdown actually saw record low levels of alcohol use, um, which I guess is probably just people, you know, people obviously drinking at home, but they're less out socializing, um, potentially like after work drinks, things like that. Um, and there was a bit of a debate around how much people are drinking in lockdown, obviously potentially higher, higher uses of um, individuals drinking a little bit too much, but overall there's been a decrease in alcohol use um, in, in that lockdown period. Um, and then a few other findings. So regional kind of news, you've got Adelaide, which is now once again um, Australia's meth capital. Um, obviously not a great title for them, um, but the wastewater survey has indicated that people in Adelaide are taking the most amount of methamphetamine uh, anywhere in the country. And the information that they've got from that actually shows that the the amount of methamphetamine that people were taking over lockdown period um, wasn't really affected by the big price spikes that people were seeing. So there was, um, you know, obviously is a bit of an issue getting getting drugs around the country during lockdown. And um, and it's shown that actually people will, will pay whatever they need to pay to, to get those drugs. Um, and then the City Morning Herald, uh, they reported that it is business as usual in Sydney as the cocaine usage rate has bounced back after the COVID-19 dip. So Sydney is the Australian capital of cocaine use. Um, it said that in the summer, there was an average of about two grams per thousand people being consumed per day in Sydney. Um, and that dipped to just under one gram per day per thousand people um, in, in, in April. And then by June, that's kind of bumped back up to normal levels of 1.35 grams per per, uh, per thousand people per day. So, you know, interesting to get that picture from from across the country and, and how lockdown has affected that and, and what, what people are doing. Another um, look at the, you know, the, the overall drug use, I suppose, because we also had the, um, uh, uh, the COVID-19 special of global, uh, the global, 
drug survey a, a few weeks back and also um, not really re- related to the COVID-19 period, but the latest um, sort of big picture survey period, which is the uh, National Drug Strategy Household Survey. Um, but yeah, interesting, um, all the results that we get from the uh, from the wastewater analysis as well. Uh, over to the standard.net.au, uh, distress, depression and drug use, young people fear for their future after the bushfires. So the Royal Commission into the bushfires is imminent. Um, the results have sort of been pre-announced. Um, basically, they're coming out and saying that the status quo is no longer able to defend us from the impacts of global warming. Um, there's been some new research sort of in tandem with that or, or coming out um, to kind of be in alignment with that. Uh, researchers from the University of New England, which is in the um, west of Sydney and the University of Canterbury, they've investigated attitudes and opinions of young people um, around climate change and they were particularly looking at people who were affected by last summer's bushfires, um, people who were close to the fires, close to the damage and they've shown that a lot of those people who, who experienced a lot of those like really terrible events, they're much more likely to report distress, um, PTSD, you know, long, long-term mental health issues and in in as a result of that, they've got, they're predicting or, or suggesting that there's a lot higher rates of drug and alcohol consumption um, because of that. So this is kind of a bit of a broader story that you can extrapolate out from these like individual instances showing that climate change is probably going to have a really negative impact on people's mental health and it's also going to have um you know lead to higher rates of drug and alcohol consumption as a result of that so kind of a bit of a you know snapshot but a broader image of what we probably should be expecting over the next few few decades uh, to video gaming now, a topic that we don't get to uh, touch on much on this show. Uh, why Wasteland 3 was re- refused classification and modified before release in kotaku.com.au. Right, so this is a gaming website that I, I came across and I thought it was quite an interesting story because it kind of indicates just how the government approaches drugs and drug use. Um, essentially, there's this video game called Wasteland 3 and they wanted to release it here in Australia, but the Australian Classifications Board came out and said, no, you can't release that here because it features um, something in the game where players, you know, I, I guess you're playing as a, as a character and you smoke something called Rocky Mountain Moose Grass, which is essentially, you know, meant to be like a cannabis or something like that. And it gives their player like a bit of an advantage. And there's a few kind of like tongue in cheek jokes in the game about like, you know, taking the edge off and stuff like that. Anyway, kind of bit of fun, you, you know, whatever. And, and the Australian Classifications Board has this policy which is against games that and this is a quotation depict express or otherwise deal with matters of sex drug misuse or addiction in such a way that they offend against the standards of morality decency and propriety generally accepted by reasonable adults which i thought was kind of an interesting way that they go about classifying that and so the the australian um, classification board made the developers of that game change the game and remove that component of it Interesting because um, the mainstream media were not allowed to depict as desirable the misuse of uh, drugs, alcohol. Uh, sorry, I think it's the misuse of alcohol and the use of drugs because all use of drugs is considered misuse under under prohibition. Um, but but um, seeing the uh, offend against the standards of morality and decency um, is a. Uh, 
I feel like that's straight out of like 1950s or something. That's very, uh, very, very strange. Um, but yes, I suppose if he's getting an advantage, the character's getting an advantage, taking um, the moose, whatever it was. Oh dear, oh dear. But you're allowed to, you know, uh, tear people to shreds with a machine gun because that's that's fine. Um, that's what we do in video games. <laughs> The Daily Telegraph, uh, more than 13,000 cannabis plants seized in huge $40 million New South Wales drug raid, seizure porn. That's my title. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So this is a record seizure from the New South Wales police, um, big factory that they found, 13,000 cannabis plants, and they've, you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, publications have covered this, suggesting it's you know this forty million dollar find and how they're going to crack down on on cannabis, um, illicit cannabis production and and, and operations. Um, but the kind of broader understanding of that, um, there's a guy Reese Cohen who's who's from Cannabis. He ran some quick numbers on Twitter, which I thought were really interesting um, to suggest that this kind of seizure would represent probably a 2% drop in the total national supply for a period of maybe three months. You know, you would assume that other groups, other gangs will just sort of step in and up their production or potentially just increase their prices. And, and they're probably just going to benefit from, from having this, this, group taken out um and then this website pondering pot who do a lot of really really good stuff on um, cannabis news across australia they also noticed that the new south wales police who are normally very keen to jump on social media and basically gloat about exactly what you've said you know seizure porn this thing of them you know standing on all these torn down cannabis plants and showing what a great job they're doing. Um, they actually haven't posted anything about this bust on Facebook, which is kind of interesting given that it's a record seizure. You know, you'd think they'd be right on it, but every time they do post stuff about cannabis seizures, they just get absolutely rinsed on social media. You know, people just take the piss and rip into them and say, you know, what a total waste of police money and, and things like that. So they've actually not posted anything about that on Facebook, which I think is kind of funny that they've shied away from that. Uh, it's probably better if they uh, get on, you know, a segment with uh, Paul Murray or something on on Sky News. I think there's a more favourable audience for them there. Although perhaps not. Even even the uh, Sky News audience sometimes uh, heads towards uh, cannabis decriminalisation. Um, over to uh, the US Reason um, dot com debates best moment: uh, Trump and Biden bragging on prison reform. Right, so US election, obviously a couple of days away now, and it's going to be pretty heated. There's a lot riding on the election. And one of the big topics, um, maybe not surprisingly, but it doesn't really get that much coverage in, in usual elections, is drug policy and incarceration. And I think more and more it's becoming very apparent to a lot of people that um, the incarceration rates of, of non-white people in the US are just crazy out of proportion and that a lot of it comes down to potentially this sort of institutionalized racist policing and the ways in which drug policy is used to, to persecute minorities in that sense. Um, Donald Trump has actually used Biden's legacy. So they had the debate last Friday, which I watched because I do that kind of thing. But um, he, he went hard at Joe Biden about his legacy on supporting this 1994 crime bill in which he referred to um, black people as super predators and how it would introduce mandatory minimum sentencing for drug possession. That's something that Biden has kind of struggled to shake off because obviously, you know, he's been in politics a long time. He's got some pretty conservative views and, you know, people do change their views, but that's certainly something something that he did agree with at one point. Um, Biden came back and stated that 
his views have changed and now he actually believes that mandatory rehabilitation programs is the right way to go for people who are caught using drugs, which, you know, it's maybe a step in the right direction, but it's also got a whole range of other issues and it frames any usage of drugs as problem. And, you know, you are, you are a menace to society. So it's, it's, you know, it's something that maybe is not the the best way to go about it. Um, Obviously there's a few other stories around this. I've got a bit more in, in the wrap there, but that has been a big, big story for, um, for a while now is, is this record on incarceration. And I think continuingly we're going to be seeing that as having an effect on voters uh, over the next few days and, and you know, how, how long it takes to, to count the vote. To the UK now, uh, operator of Glasgow's safe drug use van charged at service in theguardian.com. Right, so this is a bit of a depressing story. Um, Peter Crickent, Crickent, I'm actually not 100% sure how to pronounce his name. He's he's a former um, person with with this sort of lived experience of, of drug dependency. He's a harm reduction activist. He's he's taken um, action into his own hands, and he's decided to set up this safe drug consumption van that he drives around Glasgow, and, and Glasgow being a, a city in Scotland that's got one of the highest rates of, of um, opioid overdose in, in Europe. You know, it's it's really kind of out of control there. And the UK government hasn't really done much to address that. Um, there's not been much in the way of sort of in, in inventive policy or, or anything that um, would would appeal to, you know, harm reduction, reasoning and sort of sensible drug policy. So this guy, Peter Creekin, he's put this van together and he's driving it around to places where people are likely to be using intravenous drugs and he's offering them safe space to do so. He's carrying naloxone and he's um, he's actually dealt with an overdose already and he's been doing this for a few weeks. Um, the police have stepped in. Uh, they stepped in this week and they they arrested him. They charged him. Um, he's waiting on when his trial date is going to be. I think he's out on bail now, continuing to go about doing the same thing that he's doing. Um, and they searched a few people who are using the van for for safe you know refuge a place to to do drugs in that sense so kind of just a bit backwards step in the uk there and it's it's a shame that it has to fall to people like peter who you know really brave what they're doing and and really doing it just out of the kindness of their heart to help people so kind of sucks um, uh, that actually just reminded me that I, we, we have a, a sort of similar story here um, in Australia that I thought I might just tack on here, um, which is uh, drug trafficking outreach workers sentence halved, halved on appeal. And this is about Matthew Honey, um, who is a, a former um, worker of the year with the Yarra Drug and Health Forum, who are also having their um, Yarra Drug Health Forum uh, annual meeting on the 10th of November, Tuesday, the 10th of November. You can find out more information about them at ydhf.org. Um, Matt has been a long-time uh, peer worker uh, working at the Supervised Injecting Centre and he is a peer. He is, he, he is somebody who um, still is a person who uses drugs, but unfortunately there's still that kind of mismatch um, where you've got somebody who does have this knowledge, who does have this ability to speak with the community, um, which does mean that they are breaking the law because they enjoy the drug that they enjoy, which is against the law, um, and he was found to uh, have been uh, selling um, and uh, he had uh, an appeal to his sentence. I think it was a one-year sentence, and um, the one-year sentence has been appealed uh, successfully um, and halved 
So he's now uh, got a six-month sentence, and I think there's a 12-month good uh, good behaviour bond, uh, community, uh, community corrections order uh, following that up. Um, and uh, I think we've even had Matthew on the show in the past, many years ago now, um, but Matthew, honey, is a friend of the community and, and certainly not somebody that um, should be going to uh, jail at all in the first place. It's, it just kind of shows that it's a more complex issue that we need uh, more understanding on. Um, so I just wanted to put that one on there because that just reminded me with the, the Glasgow story that we, we often have those uh, issues around people that are working with community who do happen to be peers as well. Um, finally, New Zealand, stuff.co.nz, but, you know, it's all over the place. Uh, what has happened, Jack? Right, so a bit annoying in terms of timing for me as I sent out the wrap on, on Friday just uh, an hour before the New Zealand cannabis referendum results were announced. Um, forgetting that New Zealand was two hours ahead, I put in the, the newsletter, oh, it'll be around at two o'clock because that's what I read in, in New Zealand, but I forgot that they're two hours ahead. Um, it's actually only an hour before before um, I released the wrap that the, the results were announced. And... Yeah, the as I'm sure everyone knows by now, the results are looking like no. Um, I think it's 60, uh, 43 to 46 to 53 percent uh, in favour of no. Now there's a bit of wiggle room there, maybe a bit of kind of silver lining ray of hope that there are these special votes which number about five hundred thousand. They are likely to swing um, more towards yes because there's people in special circumstances that might be more more um, benefited by the changes here. They would need those special votes to swing in favour of yes by about two thirds in order to make up the I think it's like 167,000 vote um, that they're that they're trailing the the yes campaign. So maybe there's a chance that it could squeeze through, but it's a pretty big margin that the, um, that the no campaign have won by, you know, six, 6% is, is not like a margin of error. That's, that's a pretty significant amount. Um, yeah. So a bit of a shame there. I think a bit of, um, kind of lost opportunity, uh, you know, Jacinda Ardern came out pretty much immediately afterwards and said that she actually voted yes, um, for that, which, you know, I'm kind of a bit late now, but, you do sort of wonder what would have happened if she had come out and campaigned a little bit harder for it. Obviously, she wanted to be seen as impartial. I don't know why you tell people what you voted for now, if, if that's the case. But, yeah, so a bit of a shame there. I mean, maybe it'll go ahead. It's looking like it probably won't. And, you know, those special votes will be coming in over the next uh, few weeks and we'll, we'll get the total final tally um, soon. So, yeah, a bit of a shame for New Zealand. Yeah, especially since they've been they've had so many um, progressive wins. So sort of, I mean, it's it's so close in in New Zealand. Progressive wins, but then hitbacks almost immediately uh, on drug policy reform, uh, like with the, um, uh, the 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 legalization and regulation of the psychoactive substances market market for um, novel psychoactive substances, which ended up being um, essentially. Um, stalled in its place. It still exists. It's still possible, um, in theory, to regulate a psychoactive substance in New Zealand. Uh, cannabis could be one of those psychoactive substances, but there's different legal frameworks for that. Um, but because of the, you know, the the, the cost involved with um, with doing the testing and the fact that you cannot do animal testing um, now in in, the New, in New Zealand, um, which is the one way that you can get testing and have it approved for human consumption, um, then it's just it's just never going to happen. So um, the, that news uh, so close. Well, 
not yeah, not hugely close. I mean, we'll find out um, if it gets uh, if if that margin gets a little a little smaller um, with the half a million votes still to be counted. But um, oh, what a shame! I was really hopeful for uh, for New Zealand. I thought that um, it might be they might actually get that uh, over the line. Um, and I should also say it is actually today on Sunday, International Drug Users Day, first uh, of, of November every year um, is International Drug Users Day, um, which is uh, celebrated largely by um, the harm reduction organisations around the world um, by talking about um, drug use issues and um, certainly legalisation of cannabis would, you know, is a big one. Um, there's also a campaign uh, video that's been released by Dancewise um, today, which you can find at their YouTube channel. I'll put a link to it um, around here um, and you can go and watch that one. It's an explainer on pill testing because of course we're also heading into uh, into summer now, um, which is traditionally festival season, although we are not going to see, even though Melbourne's a little bit more open up, um, we're, we're not really going to see uh, any festivals in the meantime but probably a lot of um, a lot of picnics um, that might get a little bit uh, wilder than uh, initially anticipated. Um, so yeah, few things going on, um, but that's uh, that's what <laughs> that's that's the day. Um, Jack, um, thank you very much. Drugswrap.substack.com is the newsletter. Thank you, Jack. Yeah, thanks a lot, Nick. Uh, I'll see you next weekend. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast.
Staunch with the Menace on In Psychedelia. And if you want to find more from Staunch, head to Staunch's Bandcamp, staunch.bandcamp.com. That's S-T-A-U-N-C-H dot bandcamp.com. Uh, and you can find heaps of other Australian artists selling their music online so you can buy it. Um, these are artists that don't normally get um, huge amounts of mainstream airplay, um, the sorts of artists that you might see at music festivals and other such events that uh, we are still not going to see the likes of for a little while yet. So Bandcamp, good place to go to support local uh, music. 
positions. It is 3CR and it is today, International Drug Users Day, and today um, has also been the launch of a joint campaign from DanceWise, uh, Pill Testing Australia and Harm Reduction Australia. Um, it is a, a video, about five-minute long video, um, that talks about, uh, well, has David Caldicott as a little cartoon figure, David Caldicott um, from... Calvary Hospital in the ACT, but also from Pill Testing Australia, from uh, Harm Reduction Australia, and he's uh, also been a long time, long time friend of the program. We've had him on many times uh, to talk about uh, many issues, but especially pill testing, an issue uh, that he's been working on for two decades uh, at least. Uh, so I'm going to play you the audio from that video, but if you want to watch it, do go and watch the whole thing because it is a cartoon video. It's on YouTube. Uh, it's also on uh, Dancewise's Facebook account, so you can go and find them. There, there. Just look for DanceWise, that's Wise with a Z. And here is the pill testing video. Pill testing explained on Psychedelia. Well, hello. I'm David Caldicott, uh, emergency consultant, surveyor of the illicit drug landscape in Australia, and clinical lead for Australia's only government sanctioned pill testing program, Pill Testing Australia. And who might you be? I'm delighted to meet you and congratulate you for coming along, presumably in search of information on pill testing. In today's tutorial, we're going to look at how common pill testing or drug checking methods work. And there'll definitely be reference to laser beams. Around 9 million Australians have used an illicit drug in their lifetime. From a medical perspective, it's not our job or the job of our profession to sit in moral judgment of those who use drugs. Instead, I treat the harms associated with drug consumption. And where I can, try to reduce the harms from consumption, while those who consume them trying to navigate the often narrow middle ground between pleasure and pain. Arm reduction is a globally well-recognised and increasingly accepted approach to drug use that acknowledges the reality of drug consumption, recognises that people still have the right to health, and promotes an evidence-based approach to drug-related health policies. Arm reduction is something that we all know about already, if only subconsciously. Using a helmet while riding a bike, seatbelts while in a car, a life jacket while on the water, or a condom while you're in the throes of acute connubial bliss. These are all examples in modern society where we participate in behaviour that is risky and use strategies to reduce that risk. Pill testing is no different. It's an approach that prioritises health rather than punishing individual users. And if we had more of that attitude in our approach to drugs, there'd be far fewer drug-related deaths in the world today. Today, we're going to look at the Fourier Transform Infrared Spectrometer, or FTIR one of the entry-level laboratory methods used to test what's in a drug. It's been used in more than a dozen countries around the world, and it's what PTA uses as our go-to gear when we do our thing in the paddock. Our friend here is a, is a fairly clever chap, part detective, part translator, and part librarian. Let me explain. You know how we all have our own words for something like 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine, or MDMA, maybe ecstasy, or pingas, or googs, or molly... These names are part descriptions and part hope, because without our friends, you can't really be sure of what's going on inside them. You hope you know. You hope that you're right, because in your heart you know that the difference between being right and wrong in this circumstance can have an impact on your evening's activity. Like I said, our friend can find chemicals and then translate those findings from their language into ours. So how does the process work? Well, we take a small amount of whatever you want to know more about, and cover this pinky toenail-sized glass plate, which is directly beneath that nib there, which fires a... Well, it's actually an infrared light beam through the drug matter on the plate. 
We know that the sort of chemicals that we're interested in absorb and reflect light, especially infrared, according to the nature and arrangement of bonds holding them all together. So when we fire our IR at our mystery powder, we get a reflection that looks like a squiggly line. This is the fingerprint of the chemical that has been identified unique to that chemical. Our friend here nicks off to the library of over 30,000 fingerprints and provides us with a best match and the probability of that match. The closer the match to the fingerprint that our friend has on record, the more confident we can be that we have correctly identified what you have submitted for analysis. People who've never seen the process of pill testing before often suggest that that's all there is to it, that you just take your ticket and you get your answer. Like taking a ticket at a deli counter. The secret sauce of pill testing is your opportunity to chat about your results with people who know a lot about the process, what is being analysed and the effects that consuming it, both good and bad. It looks more like a chill space with health professionals, peer support workers, non-judgy drug education folk and lollipops. Can we ever really 100% suggest that we'll be able to tell you with absolute certainty what you're getting when it comes from an illegal market? Well, in short, no. We'll do the best we can, but even then we have our limitations. Even our friendly drug fingerprint finder can't detect substances that make up less than, say, 5% of the sample on the plate, or if there are, for example, too many fingerprints in the one substance. In those circumstances, our friend and our friendly nerdy chemists can refer to a slower but more muscular mate to look for an answer, like gas chromatography and mass spectrometry, or something even more high-tech and a little wetter like, drum roll please, the human brain. That's right, whether you use drugs or not, or get a squiggly line from our friend or not, you also always need to use your brain. The mind machine needs to be full of information about the general risks of any particular drug, desired and less desirable effects, your individual risk profile based on your family's health history, what you ate when you last ate it, how much water you've been drinking every waking hour for the last three days, the way the wind is blowing and other environmental factors like temperature. Did you know that you just shouldn't have pingers when it's hot? Like 30 degrees hot, like average Australian summer day hot. I can't tell you whether it's safe to take a drug, even after it's been tested. I can only interpret our friend's squiggly line language for you. Each and every time you take something, including drugs like alcohol or prescription medication, you have to use your built-in biotech to assess all the relevant factors. You can speak to trusted health professionals and peer educators like our friends from DanceWise for more pieces of information. But you have to think for yourself, care for yourself, and consider the well-being of your wider community. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, in the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 
your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. In Psychedelia, 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital, 3cr.org.au. My name is Nick. Today is International Drug Users Day. Uh, And if you are online... Make sure to go and check out the uh, DanceWise slash Pill Testing Australia slash uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia uh, video, Pill Testing Explained. Um, you can find that at the DanceWise Facebook or on their YouTube. Going to play for you now a uh, short section from a recent Yarra Drug and Health Forum uh, meeting, uh, online meeting. Um, this was alongside the um, um, uh, a series of uh, of other 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 hosts uh that was the nexus dual diagnosis service harm reduction victoria uh mind australia and wellways and the northeast mental health service coordination alliance uh you can find the full video if you want to watch the full video uh at the yarra drug and health forum uh youtube and you can watch that back there. So you're going to hear a couple of workers speaking about uh, dual diagnosis and drug use uh, and also a uh, lived experience um, short. It's actually a, a cartoon, um, so you can watch that full thing online. The first voice you're going to hear from is Kevin Myers from the Aero Drug and Health Forum and um, Nexus. Um, I'd like to introduce Bronwyn Morrison, who is a registered psychiatric nurse working in a community care centre. So, Bronwyn, let's begin by talking about what is a community care unit and what is your specific role there? Yeah, thanks so much, Kevin. Um, Yeah, so a CCU is a community care unit. It's a residential psychosocial program um, providing 24-hour clinical care uh, to those with a primary diagnosis of mental health. It's providing an opportunity to access intensive support towards achieving personal recovery goals. So they might be learning to the skills to live independently or establishing meaningful occupation activity um, and just having more control over their own health. Um, So my role within the CCU is a senior clinician um, and I help the team um, to deliver care towards best outcomes for consumers. So specifically in terms of um, um, policies around substance use, both legal and illegal substances, um, you're you're operating through a hospital-based service. So can you describe how you deal with that issue within the CCU? Yeah, so as you said, um, our service operates in an environment where illicit substances aren't permitted on site and it's really important that that doesn't become a barrier to um, consumers in our program. Um, So obviously, you know, the legal substances like caffeine and alcohol um, are permitted on site. Nicotine, because we're part of a hospital, isn't, but we have some workarounds around that. Um, we also have a tenancy agreement um, because we're a residential program that provides some stipulations around expectations of behaviour um, in relation to substance use. So um, we really want to be able to work in a harm reduction way and, and that tenancy agreement um, we changed after we implemented the So that's um, quite a big change then from um, the older approach, which was almost you can't come in if you're using particularly illicit substances, so to lowering the threshold in a sense um, so that people can actually engage in a treatment service environment that they need to to move in towards recovery. 
Can you tell us about some of your experiences of using the BDA and what actually the implementation and training is like and how does it support practice? Yeah, for sure. So part of my role um, is about helping the team look for opportunities to improve practice and outcomes for consumers. Um, So previously, staff really struggled to engage consumers around their substance use and the consumers would be really worried about being evicted from the program if they talked about it. Um, So we all wanted to to look at what can we do better in this space. So we approached Nexus and, you know, felt that the BDA really fit with the recovery model and what our program was trying to achieve for consumers. Um, So, you know, engaged the team in in training and rolled that out and, um, yeah, really provided that as an opportunity for consumers within the program. Um, It gave, you know, staff much more support in how to have that conversation with a consumer um, and obviously helping the consumer to think about what it is that they can do um, to stay safe. That's an um, interesting point actually about having a, a model of practice as opposed to just leaving it up to the individual worker. So having the BDA mm-hmm. seems to have allowed that um, culture shift in terms of embedding practice. Can you give us some examples of um how this looks in terms of a particular consumer? Yeah, for sure. So I had um, the privilege of being able to work with a consumer who was transitioning from a correctional service to the CCU. Um, And one of their biggest worries was resuming illicit substance use where they had a goal of remaining abstinent and had worked um, on some strategies for what they might do when they felt urges to use. Um, so when they entered the program, they they did find it really difficult to abstain and, and within the day they started using again. Um, initially, they were really afraid to tell me. They thought they might have let me down. Um, so I was able to, to reassure them. Um, they told me that their, their goal was still to be abstinent, but that maybe that was... Um, something that they could work towards and so really thought about, you know, safer using and reduced using. Um, So with that, it opened up the opportunity for me to introduce the BDA tool as a way to look at how they might go about doing that. So, you know, we through conversation, we celebrated the things that they already do um, in terms of, you know, being able to know the impact of the substances on their health, both physical and mental health, mm. um, you know, that they engaged in the needle exchange program, had a, a regular supply and a reliable source to get their substances from, you know, made sure that they had a means to, to contact uh, the service if they needed to. Um, and so then were able to, to talk about what else they might um, need in order to achieve their goals um, and really help them to be able to identify that for themselves. It's a, it's a really um, interesting starting point, isn't it, to think that you're working with a consumer and engaging them um, in terms of looking for things that work for them as opposed to you as a worker trying to come up with ideas on your own even though i'm sure you've got some good good suggestions the working with i think which is a, an incredibly useful thing because essentially it means that the consumer can um be making decisions um even if they're, they are using a particular substance they're involved in that process of making as much as possible that use safer and i think this is one of the things that we at nexus have been talking about for many years is that rather than either 
condemning or condoning substance use, what you do is you start off and say, okay, this is where the person's at at the moment. How can we lower the threshold so we can engage them in conversation, maintain as much um, harm reduction as possible? And that, in the very nature of doing that, that actually starts to lead people to working with you in other assets of their, facets of their life as well. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's really about supporting them um, to come up with what's going to work for them. They know what's going to work for them um, versus, you know, my suggestions might not actually fit and how they want to live their life. So it's really important to be able to support them to have that control and choice. Thank you very much, Bromin, for bringing us um, the world of the CCU and how you're using the BDA. We'll see you in the Q&A. And our next speaker is Erin from Mind Australia. So thank you, Bromin. Thank you. Hi, Erin. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks so much for being part of this interview. So for those watching this webinar, we implemented the Before, During, After Harm Reduction Package, or BDA, at your workplace. And staff were trained and mentored in the use of the BDA tool. And you've been using this treatment planning tool with consumers. So today, you're thankfully going to be sharing some of your experiences at the BDA, so thank you for that. Let's begin by talking a little bit about Sandridge House. So for those who don't know what Sandridge House is, could you please just give us a bit of an idea of what it is and what your role is? Sure. So Sandridge House is a youth residential service um, that supports young people aged 18 to 25, um, are residents of experienced or at risk of homelessness and are also experiencing mental health challenges, um, our residents are supported to set individual goals and work towards achieving these uh, with one-to-one -one support from a key worker and also in group settings as part of our psychoeducational group program. Um, and these are really focused on mental health recovery as well as building capacity uh, with independent living skills and goal attainment. Um, so I'm the team leader and I support uh, a group of five community mental health practitioners and one peer practitioner who deliver the program day to day. Mm -hmm. And so what, what are Sandridge House's policies on alcohol, nicotine, caffeine and other drugs? So Sandridge House policy states that the residents cannot consume, store, share or distribute illicit drugs, drug paraphernalia or unprescribed medications on the premises. Um, so the purpose of this policy is obviously to keep residents and staff safe, um, but it obviously presents a number of challenges when supporting those who use substances regularly. Um, things like consumers finding a safe space to use and to store their substances um, or feeling as though they may need to consume more because they can't bring it home with them. Um, but at Sandridge House, we really encourage consumers to be open and honest about the issues that they're struggling with. And we definitely don't want them to feel at risk of losing their accommodation because of it. Yeah. Okay. So the, the focus is on quality of life and safety and health, essentially. Yep. Um, so staff are given a two-hour training session and two one-and-a-half-hour group mentoring sessions, so that's a total of five hours. How important do you think this training and mentoring is in terms of implementing this package? The training was essential for us to have a, a deeper understanding of the model, of this model of harm reduction, um, and to how to go about implementing the tool with consumers. Um, the training provided the opportunity to engage in a lot of experiential learning um, so we could really feel comfortable when using the tool. Um, and the mentoring sessions were an opportunity to come back together after using the tool with consumers and to share experiences and ask questions. Um, so the whole process really helped to cement the tool into our practice instead of just having it there in the background. 
the whole process allowed us to really embed the BDA tool into our everyday conversations and our support model uh, from intake all the way through the 12-month journey and, and beyond. Um, the tool is really person-centred um, and it's, you know, it's a really a collaboration between the consumer and their support worker um, to explore issues and, and develop strategies. Fantastic. So can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about your experience of using the model? Yeah, sure. So initially I saw this as a really great opportunity for the team to upskill and to feel more confident supporting residents. Uh, most of the referrals that we're getting are for people with dual diagnosis and I found that we really needed to adapt our approach and, and have a clearer plan for how we can support those consumers and work more effectively in this space. Um, our experience has been that when you regularly focus on safety with a consumer by using the BDA, it really builds trust and understanding um, and it's helped to inform really individualised approaches to harm reduction strategies and conversations. Right. So was it useful for your consumers? Yeah, the feedback, the feedback that I get from consumers is that they really like this tool and this approach. It helps them to feel really in control. Uh, a lot of the discussions that come from using this tool really highlight to the consumers the things that they are already doing to keep themselves safe that they may not have been aware of. Um, and it also brings to the forefront potential risks that they hadn't considered and how they can self-manage those in really simple and achievable ways. So it helps keep them safe and healthy. Absolutely. Uh, and was it useful for staff members? Yeah, look, throughout the whole experience, I've seen the confidence levels within the team grow. Um, and I've had team members identify ways that we can use the tool with our residents regularly, you know, looking at a referral and saying, this client's presenting with, with this issue, I'm going to use the BDA tool with them during intake. Um, yeah, it's been really great. Great. So that's some good evidence of sustained change too, Absolutely. I guess. And in terms of just overall for the service, was it useful for the service, do you think, to implement this? Yeah. So previously we were using different AOD screening tools and identifying that, okay, perhaps this resident would benefit from some treatment or support, um, but what does that look like within our service, you know? If, uh, if they aren't ready to engage with an AOD worker, what else can we do in-house to keep them safe until they're ready? Um, for us, this is something that we can do now uh, really confidently to create a safe space for conversation and stepping towards recovery at, at their own pace. So would you say it could potentially assist with integrating your practice with an AOD service when the, when the consumer is ready? Yeah, absolutely. It's been really beneficial to, to have that conversation and, and prepare them for that space when they are ready. Yeah, fantastic. So would you recommend other health and welfare services be trained in this approach? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I have done already. I think anyone looking to upskill their team for cons supporting consumers with dual diagnosis, anyone who wants to approach harm reduction in a really practical way with confidence, this tool is really, really beneficial. It's empowering and it provides a really person-centred plan uh, to work towards with consumers um, throughout their journey. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Erin. Uh, it's been great to hear your perspectives on the BDA harm reduction package. Now we're going to hear about an actual example from one of your consumers, so I'm looking forward to, to that. Um, let's take a look and we'll see you all at the Q&A session. Thanks again, Erin. Great. No worries, thanks. Living on the streets isn't always too fun. You get a lot more problems than you think. Let's push the self-esteem down. 
My alcohol use was pretty much as much as possible to not only just numb a bit of the pain every day, to sleep a little longer at night, to make me feel more relaxed and at home for where I am at the time. There are some programs that can help in that. When you first enter that, there's a big line of questioning on uh, what do you use if you're a user of any drug or alcohol or substance like that. And if you are a user of any of them, like, you're told that you're not allowed to have it on site at all. They don't always give you ideas on how to go through the emotions and that. A lot of people don't know how to. You can't just quit cold turkey and it work all the time for everyone. Like Some people can do it. I kind of started spiralling a little bit again and I'd go out every night, have drinks and then come back and sleep. Felt like a bit of a rat in a cage at that point. Feels a lot better than the usual approach that I pretty much got, which was on how to stop using, more of how to stop harming yourself while using. People being shown that they can do something for themselves instead of having someone always hold their hand and do it for them. It shows that you have control and you're the adult. Definitely it being my choice instead of someone else's is definitely the best way to put it because you never want to be told what you have to do as an adult. You've been there, done that in life. Once you're making your choices and you want to help yourself, this is the way to do it. all we have time for this afternoon on in psychedelia it is international drug users day uh, so please go and check out some of the things um, that i have been uh, talking about uh, go and find us online we'll share those things uh, with you querying air is up next subscribe to our podcast and we'll see you next week bye this is in psychedelia for more information visit in psychedelia.org or follow us on facebook twitter or instagram in psychedelia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, Direct Line provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. In Psychedelia, we'll be back on 3CR from 2 p.m. next Sunday. 2 p.m. next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. Produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. You can hear Encyclopedia live every Sunday from 2 p.m. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.